Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. In this episode, we welcome back to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast, American author, journalist, and filmmaker Sebastian Younger to discuss his latest book, Freedom. In three succinct chapters, Younger takes us on a physical and philosophical journey exploring the concept of freedom and the disparities that exist at its core in today's modern society. While the book is rooted in Younger's 400-mile journey on foot across the northeastern United States, it branches out across history and geography to dissect competing values between our human spirit longing for individuality and our basic need for community. Younger's earlier work includes the books Tribe and the Perfect Storm, as well as the Academy Award-nominated film Restrepo. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Sebastian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. So you're in the midst of a book tour at the moment, and I wanted to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today. I found two very interesting things while preparing for this interview. And the first is we're recording this interview in June 2021, and the last time we featured you on this podcast was during the peak of the COVID-19 outbreak in the spring of last year. So I know you didn't set out to write the book about the concept of freedom because of the pandemic, and we'll talk more about that in a few, but how has the pandemic impacted the release of the book? Meaning, do you think more people are receptive to the rumination of freedom after being forced to quarantine and isolate? Well, I think the, the word freedom is being discussed quite a lot in America right now for a couple of reasons. One is the sort of complicated relationship between people and the government at the moment. I mean, the government's charged with, with, with preserving our safety. And sometimes that means vaccines and masks and distancing and, you know, or, or conserving water during a drought or whatever. I mean, that, that's just one of the government's jobs. Uh, but it's also a very polarized time. So whatever, whichever party's in power is immediately going to inflame the other party with its, the proper use of its authority. And, and so I, like, I think it's sort of unavoidable that people always use the word freedom when they want an unimpeachable rationale for, for doing something. And uh, because it's sort of one of these sacred words. So when you say, I'm, I'm fighting for my freedom, I think there's this idea that everyone should back off with the questions or the, or the, uh, the inquiries. And, um, you know, obviously that's complete nonsense, but I think the word gets used a lot like that. The other impact it's had, of course, is that you know the old-fashioned book tour used to go from bookstore to bookstore around the country, mm-hmm. and now it's all you know from my from my living room, from my apartment. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's definitely very different. Yeah. What did, what have you gained and what have you lost from that? You think? Well, I have two two young children, and so what what I've gained is that I don't have to leave them, and you know what I've lost is that there's a real a very important human dynamic when you have a room full of people doing anything together, um, you know, in a church or in a, a town hall meeting or 
uh, in a bookstore or in a classroom like that, those human gatherings are extremely important. And uh, I think that there's a prof I think there's a profound loss there. One of the reasons those gatherings are important is that there's an interplay between the speaker or the performer or the teacher or whatever it may be, and and everyone else, and the, the, that that shapes how the how the conversation progresses. And and there is no interplay, there is no back and forth. There's no signals to read, no energy in the room to to be filled with if as a speaker. Uh, so it's all it all kind of flatlines a little bit, I think. Speaking of shaping the conversation, the second thing that I uh, picked up on and found interesting is that your work resonates with people from so many different walks of life and publications exploring your work include everything from national to hyperlocal to business to religious to recreational outlets. So have you ever come across a person or group using your work to justify an action or a policy you might not personally condone? and? You don't have to mention anything specific, but just as you're a thought leader, I'm curious to know how you handle that situation. I mean, I, you know, I think journalists, their job isn't to tell people what to think, you know, it's, it's, it's to give them tools for thinking clearly. And if someone uses my work to make a decision, I don't, that, that I don't think reflects clear thinking, I, I, they just misuse my work. I don't think there's a way to properly use my work to do something that's uh, illogical or immoral. I, I, I just, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. So I, I, I've never been in that. I, I guess I should say I've never been in that situation. People have definitely misunderstood my work for sure. But then that's not my problem, really. Like, uh, although sometimes it can be sort of puzzling, <laughs> like what some people take from something, it really sometimes can be kind of a head scratcher. I appreciate that response. So what was the impetus to write freedom? It's one of, like I said, a sacred word. It's one of those human ideals, those, one of those core human ideals that people are willing to die for. And there aren't many. There's community. Uh, there's one's children, of course, I think rather naturally. And really there's freedom. And by that, I mean the, the ability of, for a group to be self-defining in, in, in face of a greater power uh, or an individual to be self-defining in the face of a greater power. And um, that's something that people have fought for and died for, for tens of thousands of years. I mean, it way predates the start of recorded history. Um, about 10,000 years ago, there were human groups that started uh, planting rather than hunting and gathering. And they established massive agricultural empires that were able to support enormous armies and concentrations of wealth and uh, the first cities and all that stuff, very, very powerful societies. And they were able to sort of do what they wanted in the world, in a sense, the, the more mobile and materially poorer hunter-gatherer societies and, and, and uh, pastoral societies around them couldn't hope to um, confront these city-states militarily. And so that, that became the sort of, I think the sort of first conflict between powerful settled societies and, and mobile ones that were hard to control, but also weren't really able to impose their own, own will on other people. So you have this, you know, one is powerful and set in place and the other is very mobile, not very powerful. And that, I think that was sort of the first occasion where on a sort of broad level, there were groups of people that were fighting for their autonomy from a greater power. And, you know, I think that dynamic between mobile and settled 
is deeply ingrained in the human psyche and has continued in some ways on through on through the modern era. In my book, I, I, I write about the Apache that remained autonomous for 300 years after the first contact with the Europeans, almost until 1900, because they were mobile. The other great way of maintaining one's autonomy is to be able to fight. And, and humans are the only species where a smaller individual or a smaller group can outfight a larger one and maintain their autonomy. That's rather extraordinary. Um, and uh, the Montenegrins, for example, in the, in the early 1600s, uh, defeated the Ottoman Empire. They invaded them three times. They were a wild mountain people and they were outnumbered 12 to one and they still, they still uh, managed to maintain their freedom. And finally, you know, if you can't outrun them and you can't outfight them, you're gonna have to outthink them. And that's where some of the social movements, social justice movements in, in our own society uh, are, are, are kind of interesting. The, the ability for say, say the labor movement to confront and, event, and eventually defeat the will of the American government and very powerful uh, corporate interests is is extraordinary, and and if that that is done through thinking through a kind of chess game, that is such a, a broad take on things, and I appreciate your ability to succinctly distill down these ironies. I have to mention that the book is 150 pages and broken into the three chapters which you just mentioned: run, fight, and think. So you clearly have the ability to harness the power of brevity. <laughs> In that case, ultimately, what do you want people to take away from your latest book? Well, ultimately, the, it's a, the idea of freedom is sacred and it mustn't be misused. And so when, when, um, when people use that word to say justify attacking, the US justify attacking the US government as on January 6th, they're doing two things. They're, they're, they're damaging a, a, a word that is incredibly valuable to us because it's such a rare and special thing. They're damaging that word. They're, they're corrupting it. They're changing its meaning for sort of corrupt purposes. But, but also, they, they, because it's a powerful word and because when, when people say that they're fighting for their freedom, even if it's a lie, even if that's not true, I think it can do real damage to the sort of to the nation as a political entity, as a, as a, as a cultural entity. I mean, I think, you know, it's like, you know, a couple that's having trouble is starting to throw around the word divorce. You know, you start, I mean, that, it's a powerful word. And I mean, you know, it, you start using that word, it's like pulling a, it's like pulling a revolver out of your back pocket. All of a sudden it really heightens the stakes. It really makes things, puts things in a very dangerous place. And when, when people in, 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 a, in a democracy, in a free society use the word freedom to corrupt the democratic process and effectively try to try to steal an election, you know, that's the end of our free society. I mean, that that's the, the next step basically is fascism. Um, so my father fled two wars. He was a refugee from two wars. Um, he fled fascist, fascist takeovers in Spain and then in France. So any, any rhetoric that veers in the direction of fascism, meaning using violence to control society, to control an outcome, any movement in that direction is more immoral and wrong and dangerous. And, uh, I feel like if people read my book, they, you know, they might have a, a, you know, a definitely a, a different way of sort of looking at this commonly used word. You know, I, I, I sort of drill down on what exactly we're talking about mm -hmm. when we use this word. But if it continues to be misunderstood and misused, then how can large modern societies even ensure freedom? Well, it, exactly. I mean, that's why, thing, I mean, that's the amazing thing about language, its ability to clarify things and to reveal 
hypocrisy and contradiction in other people that actually do not have um, honest intentions. I want to take a brief moment to step back and talk about your previous work, Tribe, yeah. um, which has become so popular among members of the fire, American Fire Service, as you know. And I think freedom has a place in the first responder community as well, especially your exploration into exceptional leadership. And you assert that true leadership requires sacrifice. So I really would appreciate it if you could detail and explain that for our listeners. Yeah, so I, I looked at the, the commonalities to under, successful underdog groups, um, the Easter Rising in Ireland that eventually threw off British rule, um, the Apache, who re remained free for 300 years till 1886. You know, by then, the, the internal combustion engine, uh, I think the telephone, the light bulb, and the machine gun had all been invented. So they were free in, while living in the midst of a technologically vastly mature, uh, superior society. Uh, one, one of the commonalities of these groups is leadership that's prepared to die for the cause. Right. I mean, it, among the Apache leaders were called uh, dew tramplers, dew as in morning dew. And what that meant was that they were at the when they raided their enemies, the leader, the most powerful person in the group was at the front of the line. Right. They were that they the, they were in the front of everybody else when they confronted the enemy. And, and, and these raids happened in the early hours. Right. So. So the dew trampler refers to the fact that the first person in the line gets soaked with dew from the from the branches of the trees and the and the grass. Uh, so so that's that's what real leadership is. It, 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 it um, leaders that hide behind other people aren't leaders. They're as I say in the book, they're opportunists, and they don't deserve a moment of our time, and they certainly don't don't deserve to be uh, respected or uh, given any kind of authority or prerogatives. Thank you for, for that. And you mentioned earlier your two little girls. So I was wondering if you don't mind if we acknowledge the life stage that you were in when you went on this 400 mile journey, because since then I know so much has changed for you personally. You have your two young daughters and you recently had a near death experience. So do you mind sharing more about those experiences and how they impacted your understanding or influenced your understanding of freedom? Yeah, I, um, so I should just say about this trek that I went on, I took a, uh, two or three friends of mine, we'd all been in a lot of combat. A couple of them were American vets. And um, we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, DC to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. We chose the railroad lines because there are these weird swaths of no man's land that crisscross America. Uh, there's no, there's really no authorities out there. There's no police, there's no nothing. I mean, unless the police are looking for you, which they were a couple of times with us. Um, but basically you can kind of do what you want. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and getting our water out of creeks and cooking over fires. And it was pretty wild. And, and um, over the course of 400 miles, as I say in the book, we were the only people who knew where we were. And there's, there's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's, that's one of them. And uh, so since then, I mean, I, we, you know, we, I've been on and off the rail lines like that for several, for many years. Uh, most of the trip took place about eight years ago, but um, we called it a kind of high, we called it high speed vagrancy. So, you know, we were carrying 60, 70 pounds, fair amount of gear. We we're moving pretty fast. We had to be sort of like 
this is sort of in quotation marks, but kind of tactical, like we, we couldn't, you know, if we were spotted by people, we, you know, we'd get arrested. We had to hide from the, from the freight trains, the, from the engineers and the trains, because they would call us in. It was all, you know, it definitely appealed to the like 10 year old boy and all of us. But then uh, some years ago, I had two children. I, we, we have a four year old and a one and a half year old. It's amazing little girls. And I've, I've long since given up war reporting. So I thought I was sort of had minimized my risks. But what happened a year ago was that I had an undiagnosed uh, aneurysm in my pancreatic artery and out of the blue, it ruptured just one day. Uh, like I'm talking to you right now, all of a sudden I felt a pain in my abdomen and blood was gushing into my abdominal cavity. And within a few minutes, I, I couldn't stand up. And within about 10 minutes, I started going blind. And um, I somehow I hung on for another hour and a half. Uh, it took them a long time to get me to the ER. And, um, you know, by the time they got me there, I, I, I was, I'd lost 90% of my blood and uh, nine zero, but I was still semi-conscious and I was conversant. And, uh, but I was really dying. And I started getting pulled down into this dark hole that was underneath me. And I didn't want to go. I didn't know I was dying, but I knew I didn't want to go in that hole. And just then my dead father appeared above me and started sort of comforting me. Now, you know, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. I'm, I would say, actively anti-mystic or something. I don't know. I mean, I just resist all of the, I resist, resist those ways of understanding the world because you can't, you know, my father was a physicist and mysticism and religion, you can't measure it. You can't test for it. You can't test its ideas. It's a, it's faith, right? It's belief. That's why they call it belief. Um, it's, but it's not knowledge. And so I resist, I resist those ways of explaining things because there's no way to test whether you're right or wrong. Like, and so, but I don't know, I don't know how to understand my father appearing as I was dying and I didn't know I was dying and there he was, you know, and I came back from that. They, by a miracle, they saved my life. And I came back from that and, and, um, you know, very, very changed. And, you know, including by the awareness that we're all of us are, you know, I mean this metaphorically speaking, of course, but we're all here by the grace of God, you know, like at any moment, any one of us could drop dead. And even people who are apparently healthy and our existence is like, is not, is, is not guaranteed, but moment by moment, that's it. We don't have, we can't actually count on anything more than that. And that means that moment by moment, we must, um, we must appreciate what we have. And for me as an, a parent and an older parent, that means appreciating the fact that I have these beautiful little children who love me, who I love, you know, and life actually isn't much more complicated than that for me at the moment. It's an incredible story and an incredible experience that you had. My understanding is that um, the survivability of an experience like that is very low. So it's incredible that you're here. Um, you mentioned that this trek happened eight years ago. So how did those experiences, your near-death near experience and having your children influenced your understanding of freedom since that journey? Did it change or did it stay the same? Well, I, I mean, there's, you know, there's different kinds of freedom. Um, there's political freedom, there's physical freedom, like we enjoyed out on the railroad lines, the Apache enjoyed. There's, I mean, physical freedom would include not being in jail, not being in prison. I talked to a guy who'd done 20 or 30 years in prison for committing a very bad crime. And 
you know, he really educated and rehabilitated himself in prison and extraordinary person. And they, he was released on good behavior, but I asked him, is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? He was like, yeah, of course it is. Are you kidding? He said, you can't be an addict, a drug addict in prison. Um, that's an extreme loss of freedom. Uh, he said, you can't even really be distracted. Like, you know, he was like, everyone's out there on their iPhones and, you know, whatever. And in prison, you got nothing but time. And, and eventually you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And, uh, and then you're a free person. Then you're really free. And so, you know, one final component of freedom that I didn't address in the book is a kind of um, a spiritual or emotional freedom. And for me, that means no longer being focused on myself, right? So I'm, in, I'm focused on my children. I'm focused on others. And there's enormous freedom that comes from being released with self, released from self-concern or at least obsessive self-concern, released from that and focused on, on, the, on the welfare of others, um, of one's children or one's friends or I suppose humanity in general. I, there's an enormous freedom that comes with that. So I would say the final form of freedom that I've been sort of blessed to experience is, is that, is that, and I, and I, and I, and I'm having, I, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I have the good fortune of, of experiencing that because of my children. Um, and the, the idea that I was almost take, wrenched away from them a year ago, um, is so painful to think about that. I almost can't bring myself to think about it for very long. It, it produces a kind of, uh, a kind of panic in me. One of the Leadership Under Fire teammates, Tim Clark, who's an FDNY firefighter, prior to joining the fire department was a professional Ironman. And he hosts his own podcast and he always asks his guests this question. And it has, you know, me thinking, the question is, what is your relationship with pain? And I think that that has obviously evolved over different life stages. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, if you're an endurance athlete, the, your relationship with pain is, uh, along with the, um, whatever genetics you're endowed with or not endowed with, your relationship with pain is the main limiting factor in, in how well, how, what level you're going to perform at. And if you can't override the experience of pain and make your body do things regardless of what it feels like, if you can't do that, you're not going to be an, an endurance athlete. And, you know, that was on the, on the trek along the railroad lines, you know, I mean, it wasn't like running a four minute mile, but it hurt a lot of the time. It didn't feel very good. And your main adversary isn't your body who will, your body will sort of stumble along almost indefinitely. You know, your main adversary is your brain that wants to give up and, and you, you know, the struggle is with that. And so I have an excellent relationship with pain. Like I can, I can remove myself from the experience of it fairly well. And that's because I was an athlete. And as we begin to wind down today, I'll bring it back to the, the topic at hand. Yeah. I have to ask, what do you think is the greatest threat and the greatest opportunity to our freedom today? Well, I mean, our democratic system has codified a basically egalitarian system, you know, into its laws. And so we're a free society because people who have a lot of responsibility and a lot of power don't have extra rights. Like the kings and queens of Europe in the Middle Ages 
not only were they very powerful, but they had extra rights. They could kill people, they could plunder, they could rape, they could do whatever they wanted, and there were no consequences. But in a democracy, in a free society, whether that's a hunter-gatherer society 30,000 years ago, uh, or in a modern democracy, the president doesn't have extra rights. The police chiefs don't have extra rights. The lawmakers, the generals, they cannot do what they want. In dictatorships, they can. Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein could do whatever he wanted, right? He could rig the system, become very, very wealthy. He could avoid any personal responsibility for murder and every, anything else. And all his generals were the same. In a democracy, that's not true. And I think this country, this amazing country, it has to be very, very careful of allowing its leaders to enrich themselves by gaming the system. Um, honestly, I don't understand how Mitch McConnell acquired tens of millions of dollars as a, on a senator's salary. I just don't understand the math and the Democrats are just as bad at this. Uh, and likewise, I think, I think the, the, the past president, Trump, I think tried to get away with a lot of stuff that the average citizen would have been arrested and tried for immediately. And I don't, that's dangerous. And I, I know I'm a Democrat, but I'm, I, I, that's equally true. I mean, I, I would say that I the exact same thing had a Democrat done all the things that Trump had. And, I, and it's, it's very, very dangerous for our democracy. And I think that's the thing we have to be on guard against for people from both parties, when they transgress the deep honor of being a leader, when they, when they transgress that and use it to benefit themselves, um, really, they should be thrown out of the life raft. I mean, it's our life raft. You don't belong in here. Out you go. You are very strong in your convictions right now. I'm curious to know if you've ever changed your position on any of the work you've produced in the past. God, I, um, not really. I, I, you know, I, um, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, there's always factual corrections that happen in journalism. You know, it, it, uh, the military told me from many sources that the ratio of combat, combat soldiers to support soldiers is roughly one to 10, right? And then I found out through, through a, a veteran that it's actually more like one to three. I mean, I didn't know, right? I took the military at its word. I found out that horses sweat. I had no idea that horses sweat. I mean, they have fur. I thought all animals with fur didn't sweat. Horses do, they're the exception, right? And I, in a podcast, I, I said that horses don't sweat and humans do, and so we're more heat tolerant. I was wrong. So on that level, yeah, I've, I mean, I've, I've corrected. But on the sort of basic um, moral premise of my work, no, it hasn't changed at all. I, I, I can't, almost can't imagine it changing. When you're writing, are you concerned that any of your ideas might not age well in the current climate of retrospective cancel culture? Well, I, you know, I'm not interested in aging well. I'm interested in saying things that are true and demonstrably true through facts and reasoning. And if an unreasonable, non-factual process decides that my conclusions are a form of heresy, that really reflects on them, not on the truth. I mean, the acceleration of gravity is nine meters per second per second. And that's just true no matter who says it no matter what sex they are, what race, what age, what anything, that's just true, right? And so I try, to, I try to make sure that the things that I write are true, like that is true. And if someone comes along later and says otherwise, they have to demonstrate that, right? And, and if they can't, then I don't really care what they think. And cancel culture um, 
to the extent that I understand it, it seems like it's people who were claiming to be able to dictate how you must think and talk. And that's fascism. Like, I don't care if they think it's well-intended, it's, it's, it's fascism, that's antithetical to freedom. And if their ideas are better than someone else's ideas, then that, that they, they should win in the marketplace of ideas, but not because someone is obeying a dictate. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. I have to acknowledge this is how I'm starting off my Monday. So this is really thought provoking. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, I think it's really nice to leave listeners with a chance to broaden their knowledge base. So do you have any books or articles that have resonated with you in recent years that we could leave listeners with? Yeah, God, let's see. There's so many good, so many good books. My, my, my dear friend, Sarah Shays, I've known since I was four, she wrote a book called On Corruption in America that really details the, um, I mean, just straight up corrupt relationship between corporate interests and, and, and political leaders. And again, both sides do it. And it, it really, you know, it's an extraordinary document. And, and uh, um, there's an amazing book about the Comanche called uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. That's just incredible writing. Like, that should be read. And then there's a book that I read as a teenager and I just reread it. It's called The, um, the Starship and the Canoe. And it's about a, um, a father son, a father and son. The father was a physicist who wanted to go to Mars, design a spaceship that would go to Mars and beyond. And the son uh, lived in a treehouse and built a canoe with which he ranged up and down the coast of British Columbia. And I just reread it. And um, my father was a physicist and I, didn't quite live in a treehouse, but close. And, uh, and I just reread it after 40 years. And it's the most unbelievably good book. And it's a profound book. And I even got in touch with the author. And I told them like how important this book was to me at 16. And I just reread it and it blew my mind. And uh, we've had an incredibly nice uh, correspondence. So the Starship in the Canoe, it's, it's still in print. And uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary book. Well, of course, I'm going to advocate that listeners, if they haven't already done so, to go and add freedom to that list of reading. So thank you again. Thank you, Patty. It was a pleasure talking to you. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.